Hi, welcome to Here to Then, hosted by Carolyn Takeda, former attorney, current small groups pastor, and life coach. Through monthly conversations with pastors, authors, and guests, we hope to stir your thoughts and encourage you to move from where you are to where you want to be, in your personal life, in your leadership, or in your ministry. Well, let's think for a moment about the various goals that we might have for our small groups in our ministry. We all have a vision for what we want them to experience in their small groups together, such as fellowship, Bible study, worship, life together, service, um, support, of course, and prayer, accountability, etc. But there's one goal that is really high theoretically when we talk about groups and envision them, but often seems to be lagging behind. And many of us would agree that that is evangelism. And this is concerning because we would all agree that we want groups to be places where people come to know Jesus and follow Him. And we know that evangelism is a huge part of discipleship. But if we're going to be really honest and ask how many of our group members invite non-Christians to their groups on a regular basis and actually have their non-believers join their groups, um, the number would probably be quite small. So why is that? And more importantly, how can we encourage and equip our groups to engage in evangelism that is a natural part of discipleship, that's relational, that's intentional, that makes a difference for the kingdom? So to help us address these issues uh, related to evangelism in groups, we've, invi- we've invited a veteran small group church consultant, Joel Kamiski. Joel, thank you so much for being on the program. It's really good to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Carolyn. Thrilled to be here. Uh, Well, Joel has um, a PhD from Fuller Seminary Intercultural Studies focusing on small groups worldwide. Um, And he's also founder of Joel Kaminsky Group and has written, I think, like 12 or 13 books on small um, group-based churches around the world. I I peeked on your website, Joel, and I counted your books. It's a lot. You've been involved in this ministry a long time. He's also been a missionary in in Ecuador and other parts of the world. And he coaches pastors and small groups ministries um, with his wife as well and actually leads a life-giving small group. Um, he has recently published a book with co-author Jim Egley called Groups That Thrive, Eight Surprising Discoveries About Life-Giving Small Groups. Okay, and this is what I actually love about your book, is that it's actually based on facts, <laughs> on research. Mm. Um, I'm kind of a research data nerd, and I love that there's actually, um, you've done surveys and then documented really what's going on in group life and not just what we hope is happening or we think might be happening. Um, so I really appreciate that about the book, and so one of the um, the parts of the book that I found most compelling was was the parts related to evangelism, which is why we wanted to invite you to come talk about that. Um, so, so Joel, let's start here. You've been in ministry, uh, particularly in small groups and cell group movement, for decades. So, what have you observed or seen over the years with respect to evangelism and an evangelistic focus in groups? Do you think it was greater in the past? Is it lesser now? Or have you not noticed much of a difference? Kind of in, from your seat on the bus, what have you observed? Uh, Carolyn, great question. I think that, you know, there was probably a lot more euphoria um, that suddenly if you start a small group, you were going to you know, change your city, change your church. There was probably much more of a of kind of a, a model mode for a long time in the small group movement in the early stages, you know. And I think now probably people are waking up to reality that it's hard work to evangelize. <laughs> yes, we, we understand. Hard, exactly. And I would say, Carolyn, especially in the States or in Europe, more in secular societies, you really have to prioritize. You have to be proactive because it's not as easy. You don't see as much natural fruit, especially, I think, in individualistic cultures as well. So, Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I would say that that's, that's been my sense. I think in the early stages of the small group movement back in the 90s, there was much more euphoria about, hey, this is just going to work, you know. And, and yet I think nowadays we have to, we have, we've woken up to the reality that it takes some diligent planning and work to make evangelism happen. Right. And do you notice a difference um, as you travel around the world on that? Like, is it st- is there still that sense of euphoria and possibility and that excitement around evangelism in groups in other parts of the co- world, less than maybe the United States? Uh, yeah, I know that's kind of the second part of my question or my answer, because I really do see in other cultures, for example, Africa, Brazil, Latin America, where there's more revival uh, even poorer country, perhaps, but I think one aspect is more group-oriented cultures, um, where there's revival. You know, then you just see a lot more evangelism, a lot more even church growth. Um, you know, so they're kind of on the early stages of the curve, you might say, and and so yeah, you do get a lot more evangelism in, in groups, and so um, no doubt about it. I, I think that as I travel around the world, there are cultures <laughs> that are really doing this thing, and it's a lot easier. But you know, I've been in the United States for a long time now, and I do realize it's, it's a different world. And now it's not that evangelism should, should change or the priority of evangelism right. should change. It's rather we have to be ready to not see as much fruit. Hmm. And and that's that's kind of what I wanted to talk about is to, to change the motivation behind evangelism rather than we're going to evangelize because we're going to see so much fruit. Um, I think the motivation should be we're going to evangelize because we want to grow as disciples. Right. We want to be obedient and we're just going to keep on doing this. God is going to give the fruit in His time, sure. but we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think that's a much um, more attractive in some ways uh, goal than just kind of a project program based. Um, because if you link it to discipleship and our own growth, we're more likely to pursue it. So, what do you think are the primary barriers or huddles to cultivate evangelism in small groups? What are the, the things that make people reluctant to kind of go for it? Well, I think that some of the reasons behind that would be that if we do evangelize, um, perhaps we're not going to have as much intimacy. We're not going to have as much transparency in the group if we're reaching out. And that's an interesting area because, you know, Jim and I both discovered in this research that the more outreach you have, the more a group is reaching out, the better transparency um, the group will have. In fact, it, was, it, it doubled the capacity for, um, for intimacy when a group was reaching out. Um, so I, I think that's one surprise. It really is a yeah, surprise. And that, that actually was a big surprise because um, I, I want to read you this uh, this scenario that you open one of um, that chapter with, just because I've heard this exact same thing from a number of people, and I'm sure some of our listeners have as well. The resistance to adding new people, especially non-believers, into groups. So you share a story about someone named Judy, a longtime member, who told you, "I don't want new people in our group." I'm here for the fellowship. I want to be able to share deeply and not have someone new come to the group. I'm around non-believers during the week all the time, but here in the group, I want to be free to share my heart with people I know well. Um, and you, this type of uh, fear, I think, I mean, it's legitimate, right? I mean, there 
it makes seems like that would be she was right that if you do add new people then you have to maybe stay more superficial but your research didn't prove that exactly carolyn it was just the opposite groups that are reaching out that are trying to get non-christians that are trying to become friends with non-christians are also groups that share more intimately that share more transparently and and so it, it truly was a surprise and that should encourage small groups to reach out now carolyn it's not like you're going to have non-christians every week in your group you know that would be great but but it's more of an attitude we're going to be reaching out we're going to be praying for that empty chair if somebody comes and that is new in the group we're going to even be more transparent so i think it's an attitude carolyn and and, and i think it really is kind of a health factor because groups that are reaching out tend to be healthier. That is, you know, the, the people are are healthier, and thus they also share more intimately. So, I, you know, I'm not really sure the reason why. That was just what we discovered. If you think the reaching out part, is it partly that they're then bonded over a common goal? Maybe that's what's fueling the intimacy? Yeah, I, I think that's part of it, no doubt about it. I also think, though, when there are new people in the group, for example, a new Christian, that person doesn't know the lingo, the Christianese, you know, the these and thous. And, and thus, I think people are, are willing then to also share their own struggles, to share, to stop get, the getting off their high chairs or their lofty seats and to kind of come down to reality to remember back to where they were and to share more intimately and to share about their struggles in marriage, for example, or whatever, in the face of a need that's before them. So I think that's part of it. And of course, also non-Christians love it when people are real. Right. Well, everybody loves it when people are real. <laughs> Nobody well, wants to be in a fake group. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. So I think it's, there's a number of reasons behind it, but but I, but I think we do need to dispel the myth that you can't be transparent if you're also really reaching out and inviting uh, non-Christians to the group. What about the concern that you have to be on your best behavior? Because you don't, if you have a non-Christian that you don't know very well in the group, uh, and say, you know, say, Joel, you brought someone. I've never met this person. We've prayed for this person. I know stuff about them, um, but I don't want to mess up your witness. So I'm going to behave, you know, be careful about what I say or what I do because I want to make sure that they get the best possible picture of a Christian. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like there might be some pressure for everyone to be on their best behavior. Yeah, that is, uh, you know, the common um, understanding, and people think that way. But I really do believe, Carolyn, that it is a myth. It Mm -hmm. it really is a myth, because in reality, when there's a non-Christian, I think we should be ready to share more deeply and be more real and to express our weaknesses. Because non-Christians, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for reality, especially the next generation. That yes. you know, they're they're looking for reality. So, so I think to be able to share more deeply, um, there's a great book out there called Small Group Evangelism by a professor at Fuller, Doctor Peace, and he talks about evangelism being a very natural process in the group. You know, everybody can talk and share and share the weaknesses. It's a it's not something that you have to be on your best behavior, you know. Um, rather, you really want to be able to share weakness. And I have found that, Carolyn, in my own experience. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, when we've had people – go ahead. I was thinking and perhaps another hurdle is if you invite a friend from a workplace – 
um, and they come to your group, now you've intersected two worlds. Um, and that could be a little uncomfortable for the person that's doing the inviting. Not that they're necessarily two different people, but now you've, it's kind of like going to someone's, you know, a birthday party and you meet like, oh, here's the work people, here's the church people, here's their, you know, relatives. And then they all kind of sometimes mesh and sometimes you see different parts of them. And I think there's some reluctance on part of members to, to have their worlds collide a bit. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it definitely does. And, and that's why I encourage groups to also have <clears throat> kind of um, various types of groups. For example, mm-hmm. one week you might have a barbecue where it'd be more acceptable for a person like that to come. Right. Now, whether or not that person enters into the to the normal attend attendance or the the I call it the discipleship of the group, you know, coming each week. You know, that's another level. You you want to create entry point points mm-hmm. for a person like that to, to come and then you just hope that they'll be there each week after that. And then do you adapt? If they come repeatedly, would you recommend they adapt the meetings to suit the non-believer? Or do they just go with business as usual with their Bible study and prayer and worship time and whatever else they do? Yeah, I would definitely say don't adapt the meeting um, in in the future uh, times when that person is there. Because really, you know, I think that a person that's new is looking for God. And by the way, Carolyn, that was another aspect of the study. Um, you know, for example, including worship. Uh, we found that, you know, groups that include worship, worship singing, were also more effective in outreach. Mm. And so you know, what, what we discovered is that those new people, those non-Christians, they are there because they really do want to find God. You know, so, you know, I would really encourage groups to to do worship singing, to, to make sure the word is an important part of the group, because you know, we don't realize oftentimes that those new people are there because they want to experience God. And we have something that, you know, they can't experience at a Starbucks or just a pure <laughs> social environment. Right. And we have Jesus. So we need to get over our fear that somehow they're going to think it's awkward or weird or judge us um, and go about our business of worshiping God together, which is why we're gathered. Exactly. That's exactly true. And, you know, I have the same fears, but, you know, I I am finding that the more we just allow people to experience God, the better. And and that includes being real. That includes worshiping. That includes making sure the word is a part of it. But I, I do do feel it's important to have various outreaches, other types of group. One thing we also found, Carolyn, that's interesting, and you might be coming to that, is to have fun together. Yes. You know, groups that, that eat together. Um, that is an important aspect of evangelism as well, you know, uh, just to, to have fun, to make sure that people feel like, hey, this is a community. You know, non-Christians are longing for that. You know, there's such an emptiness in today's impersonal society, and, and they love to experience that family community sense. And so if you need together, have fun together, those are attractive elements. Oh, for sure, especially with millennials, but also just, um, I was just reading a couple of weeks ago about we're the most connected, unconnected um, people on the planet right now, loneliness, anxiety, depression, all of that is at an all-time high because people are so connected through social media and technology, and yet, relationally, they, 
um, they're so disconnected and they very few people have a lot of people in their lives that they could confide in. Um, so mm. there's a big concern about loneliness, especially as time goes on and people get more and more dependent on technology and less on face-to-face, less on actual relationships. So the idea of community or the sense of family, as you've described it, being important and attractive to non-believers and believers alike, I think that's very uh, appealing for people. <sighs> Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and another thing I might add, Carolyn, is that, you know, one aspect that's very important to the health of the group and to evangelize and multiply is community. So I don't want to downplay those regulars, you know, really focusing on them, focusing on the community, the building up, not forcing multiplication, for example. And I've been guilty of that in the past, <laughs> but rather building community, loving those who are there, making sure that you have a strong group. And that, you know, you're praying for those empty seats, but, you know, you're depending on God to fill them. In the meantime, you're loving those who are there. You're making sure that you're going deeper, 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 while helping each one that is there move one step um, farther. And, you know, it, that is reaching out, exercising their muscles, you might say. But for the most part, you're just going to be building community, growing together together. And that's an important aspect of healthy groups. And you talk about how important it is for each member in the group to have ownership of the group and to be empowered. Mm. Um, talk to us a little bit about that with respect to evangelism. If you want evangelism to flourish in our group and be a natural part of what the group is about, then who mm. has to own that? Does a leader have to be the person owning that? Can a member own it? Do they all own it together? How do you create an environment in the group where that's a priority and everybody kind of buys in? Yeah, no doubt about it. One statement in the research that correlated with unhealthy groups was the statement, I like to lead the entire small group meeting myself. (laughs) Basically, this is a death warrant for small groups. It turns members into passive hearers, expecting them to sit in yet another meeting. Mm -hmm. So really, if there was one factor that was key, it was making sure that the people own the group. It's their group. It's not Tom's group. It's not Nancy's group. It's not Joe's group. It's our group. That really was the aspect that made healthy groups. So I would say that the word empowerment Mm -hmm. was was the key aspect. If we can get our leaders, or I, I like to call them facilitators, to empower the group. It's their group. You know, getting each member to be a minister, and that means the leader becoming more of the coach. Right. Basically letting everybody do part of the meeting, the icebreaker, the worship, even leading uh, the, the group, you know. Um, and and, and the, the, the leader becoming more of the coach. Hey, great job. Great job, Jim. Great job, Brent. And, and when that happens, then the, the, the group is owned by each member. It's our group. And that's a sign of health. And I, by the way, I dedicate the first two chapters to this aspect of empowerment because it really is the key behind healthy small group ministry. And, and so throughout the book, I use the word facilitator because a healthy leader should be a facilitator. And by the word, the, the word facilitate is to make easy, to empower. A good leader makes it easy for everyone to talk and for everyone to to minister. I like to say the leader should only talk 30% of the time, get others to talk 70% of the time. 
Right. So when it comes to evangelism, um, if someone has a spiritual gift of evangelism, then that seems to be an obvious person who might lead the charge on that and help empower one another in that. But if you have a group where nobody really um, has much experience with evangelism or they're newer believers or they just aren't super interested, how do you stir that value in the group? Well, I think that the facilitator will be a key in making that happen. And, um, you know, everyone can pray for non-Christians. Sure. The group can always put out that empty chair and pray for the next person to fill. I love Carl George has always emphasized yes. that point. And so, again, the people are doing something. They're praying. And I think the facilitator needs to say, hey, remember, God has placed people in your work. Mm-hmm. Um, so be praying for that person. God has placed you in a neighborhood, a specific neighborhood. Remember, you're God's divine appointment there, you know. But then I would say, Carolyn, that the facilitator needs to even go beyond that and and help the group to reach out. Help the group to reach out. Um, in my own group, um, you know, I we try to actually, you know, to 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 go out and, and pray for people, you know, to find people with needs, and and just now, I'll tell you, people are scared to do that, but I I see that as as kind of people exercising their spiritual muscles. So you know, again, it's more discipleship. It's not so much the fruit that takes place as a result is rather that people are growing. Right. So I think when the facilitator gets that in mind, um, they'll understand that you just should not let your people just sit. (laughs) They need to be exercising their spiritual muscles. This is part of making disciples who make disciples. And it's a part of healthy small groups. Yes, there's fears. Yes, there's, there's resistance. But I believe that we need to make disciples who make disciples. Yeah, and the prayer piece, I mean, is critical um, to that, I think. Because you're right, even if you're terrified of, of inviting a coworker or a neighbor, you can pray for them and let the Holy Spirit go ahead of you and do that. And I love your point earlier about creating entry points that are a little easier yes. to invite to groups. So you suggested like a barbecue. And we're coming upon the summer season, at least in North America, where we're talking about um, doing stuff outside and having barbecues or pool parties or movies or something what are some other entry points you think that are helpful um i I, as i was thinking of while you think of some i thought of one as you were speaking um i had a conversation with steve gladen a while back and and they do the host model which requires you to go invite friends and start a group together um, which is naturally evangelistic just by its own model creates that um, and which is such a great idea and one of the things he says when you want to launch a bunch of host groups you want to make sure your curriculum is uh, more skills based life skills more relatable on relationships is stuff that everyone can relate to non-believers and believers alike rather than studying something like exodus for example or something that's more um, dense or more heavy on the bible that's harder to relate to you have to explain a lot um, so they try to make sure that when they do the host um, launches that their curriculum and their teaching series matches something that's more um, digestible, easily digestible and attractive um, to non-believers. And I thought that was actually a really good good word if you're kind of gearing 
hiring strategically from our for the small group point leader how do you set it up for so that the facilitators and the leaders have success in this and i think curriculum is one way we can um, help them what are some other entry points or some other things that ministers can do to set up systems that will help groups engage in this in evangelism yeah, by the way, you know, I, I love what Steve Gladden is doing there, and, and that is a great um, technique, as it were, to use. Um, another thing is to to make it a goal, for example, that each group has two outreach events per year. And so the group is planning, for example, it might be a barbecue, it might be going to a movie together, going to a game together, you know, it might be playing bingo. I mean, just, you know, it, it could be silly things, but... But just, you know, a, a, a dinner, for example, um, you know, within the home would, would be a, a good one. Um, so, so I think just holding the leaders accountable for, let's say, two outreaches per year and then finding out what happened. You know, um, I think another great way is rotating the group. Hmm. You know, my small group, we have one of the rotations is in a restaurant. And oftentimes, you know, that's a good place to to invite you know non-christians so rotation is a great a great thing to get new people in the group oftentimes a host person will have more success in inviting a friend into their home True. than you know, that friend going to another home so there are various um things a, a group could do but it, but i think carolyn is more of a mindset mm. You know, if the facilitator realizes that this is growing the people, this is helping those people become disciples, it's more of the why of small group ministry. I love that book, Start With the Why. Mm -hmm. And when we understand that evangelism is really that why of of growing as disciples, I think a facilitator will, will pray that through and help the people to be reaching out. Yeah, the whole why part, what that does too, and you bring it out in, as well and Thrive, is it takes so many touches. I forget how many you said um, for people to come to faith in Christ. And it's not mm. just, maybe somebody is one and done. Maybe if you're Billy Graham, it's one and done. Um, and you come to Christ right there on the spot. But for most people, it's multiple people that have touched them throughout their lives and shared something about Jesus with them. And so if we see our groups and our members and ourselves as part of that journey for people, then we don't have to be as focused on the fruit, so to speak, and rather focus on how is this helping our group move forward and become more like Jesus together. Yeah, Carolyn, I really want to stress that point because when we focus more on the technique, okay, do this and you're going to win so many people, you know, people kind of feel like, oh, I know that's not going to happen. That's not part of my reality. Mm -hmm. But when the focus is on you are going to be growing. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's do this together. Let's be disciples of Jesus. You know, the fruit will come in God's time, but we're going to be growing together. And, you know, according to our study, the group will be healthier, too, as we do that. Well, then it's a whole different motivation. And God will give the fruit in His time. Right. You know, in my own group, we prayed for a long time for two empty chairs, and we thought we'd see fruit immediately. We did not. <laughs> we really did not. But we kept at it because of this why factor. And then suddenly, you know, a long time later, you know, people begin to come. So, you know, we did. We can't. I mean, we can't force this thing, especially in secular cultures. 
But we need to realize that, that God is molding us and shaping us as disciples of Christ. And groups that reach out are healthier groups, according to the study that Jim and I did. Right. And it is sweet when when um, God does answer those prayers and you hang with people for a long time and they do come to Christ. I remember a baptism um, not long ago where the whole group was up there baptizing with uh, a spouse uh, who was a non-believer, but the person had been, the wife had been part of the group for years and he'd been kind of on the fringes, come to social stuff, but not the Bible study. He'd kind of been checking out on and off, rarely attended church. And over time, they just continued to include him and love him. Um, and his family, and eventually he came came to faith, and it was just such a sweet moment to see the whole group up there because they all had a piece in, in God using them, um, and that for sure made the group much healthier and uh, much more excited and knit them together as a community. And that kind of that kind of fruit over time just you know helps us in our discipleship altogether. I love what you're saying there. Yeah, when God brings the fruit, what a wonderful thing. And, you know, He does answer prayer. God does answer prayer. He wants us to reach out. I mean, God is more interested in people getting saved and discipled than we are. But what a privilege to be part of the process. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Joel, for your time. I love that. That's a great final word. God is more interested in people coming to faith than we are. We, we do well to remember that and realize we're not controlling this, um, the, the Spirit is. So are there any final thoughts, Joel, you'd like to share before we sign off? Well, I just think the, the final thought is, is really what I, I just said, is that God is more interested in making disciples than we are. We have the privilege of being part of this process. Just to remember that, you know, healthy groups are groups that make an effort to reach out um, God needs to give the results. Um, and so press on, uh, and, and God is going to do this thing. Aww. Thank you so much for the encouragement. Um, thank you, Joel, for being on the program. Hey, thank you for inviting me. It's been a great privilege. Uh, well, you can follow Joel on his social media. Um, his primary contact is his website, Joel Comiskey, C-O-M-I-S-K-E-Y group.com. You can buy groups that thrive on Amazon or anywhere else. Actually, he gives away a whole bunch of free chapters on his website, so you can take advantage of that as well. It's a, it's a great book um, for us point leaders. And you can also interact with Joel on our Facebook small group network page. He is a friend of the network, and He'll respond on there as well. Um, So thank you, Joel. God bless you and your ministry. And thank you all for listening to Group Talk. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Here to There, part of the Group Talk Network of podcasts. If you like what you've heard, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you want to learn more, make sure you check out smallgroupnetwork.com for more resources.